Coming up next on Contemplate. He was utterly and completely calm and confident in the face of what would scare most people and make most people nervous. Stephen was sitting there with a smile on his face. So what lets you be calm when everything around you is nuts? Let's find out. Here's Pastor David with today's episode, recorded live at Axe Church. Here we go. Chapter 6, verse 8. First, let me tell you a little bit about Acts. I forgot to do this, and here it is in my notes. Uh, Luke wrote Acts. The, the Holy Spirit through Luke wrote Acts. Luke was a doctor, went around with Paul. He's writing a history. So Acts, we've said a lot of times, Acts is about facts, and we're seeing the story of the early church. And so far, we've seen a lot of things from the church, from the Lord Jesus actually having resurrected, talking to his disciples, ascending into heaven, the Holy Spirit coming upon the church. Uh, They're speaking in different tongues. 3,000 people join the church and get saved and become followers of Christ in one day. And then we see sort of the adventures of the early church and all these different issues that come up and get resolved. And and one of the times, Satan will bring something up and then that issue will get resolved because people are just living in the power of the Spirit. And so the issue gets resolved. They run right over it and the church starts growing again. And it's just been growing and growing and thousands here and thousands there. And here we are at this point. Last week we talked about the first deacons. These seven men, these seven deacons that were named to help sort of split the load of what was going on in the church leadership so that the, so that the apostles could concentrate on the word of God and prayer and these guys could tr- concentrate on more of the administrative tasks of taking care of the poor, the needy, and so on, right? That's where we were. We saw a group of guys listed and one of those guys' name was Stephen. So now we're going to read about him. Let's look at uh, verse 6-8. It says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, Did great wonders and signs among the people. Did great wonders and signs among the people. Okay, full of faith and power. So what does that mean? What what does it mean to be full of faith? What is faith? I could do a number of sermons on this, but let me just give you something quick on this. What What we're referring here to with Stephen is this guy had conviction about what he believed. He was not at all unsteady on his belief about who Jesus was that he was the son of God, that he rose from the dead, that, that Stephen was, was involved in a great act for the kingdom of God. There was no question for him. He's full of faith. And because of that conviction and that faith, he was also full of power. The power of the Holy Spirit was in him because Stephen was so full of faith. Stephen was so full of faith, the Holy Spirit's working through him, and there's power. And what's he doing? He's out there doing wonders and signs. So he's a deacon. We talked about that. I talked about how it refers to them as serving tables. And I, and I said last time, that's, that's yes, there's an administrative side. But what we see here is that as Stephen does the, what, what some people would have considered the small thing well, sometimes we have to do small things, right? Hey, can you just take the trash out? And it's like, well, that's not as good as seeing 30 people come to the Lord. Yeah, maybe not, but they don't come to the Lord if there's trash all over the floor, right? And so as Stephen does the small things, now here we are and we see him doing big things, wonders and signs, okay? And he's full of power. He's full of the Holy Spirit, all right? Now, let's look at verse 9. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. Who are these guys, okay? So Stephen's out there. 
He's preaching, he's doing wonders, he's doing signs through the power of the Holy Spirit, and these guys come up against him. It says the freedmen, the freedmen. Um, these guys are probably folks who were slaves, who were taken to Rome, had purchased their freedom and come back to Jerusalem and established a synagogue. Okay, that's probably who these freedmen were. In, in the past, years before, the Romans had actually taken this area of Judea, and when they did that, it was war, right? And in that, they took some of these guys as slaves. Well, some of these men would have gone back to Rome as slaves. At this point, they've bought their freedom. They've moved back to Jerusalem. They've established a synagogue of other folks like themselves, freed men, right? And so that's, it's not a clever word. That's just, it means what it says. They were freed men. Then it talks about these other guys, the Cyrenians, Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia, I don't know, okay, and, and in my study, I was not able to, able to find a definitive answer as to whether these folks that they're mentioning are all part of the synagogue of the freedmen or whether or not there are actually synagogues sort of for each of these groups. We talked last time about Hellenists, right? Hellenist Jews, which were Jews that spoke Greek as their first language. Those, these, are all, these would all be Hellenist Jews, okay? And so we don't know for sure whether they were part of the synagogue of the freedmen or whether these other folks were actually uh, also individual synagogues. So Stephen would have been going to these. We see, we see this and we'll see this pattern. Stephen probably was going to these particular synagogues to talk to these particular Jews because like Stephen, they were Hellenists and spoke Greek. And so he would have gone to these places and talked about Jesus and used the Old Testament to show that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, that he died, he rose again, and so on. So as he does this and comes against sort of their traditions, they start to dispute with him. And it says in the next verse, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Okay. Basically, when Stephen talked and talked about Jesus, these guys tried to argue and had nothing, could come up with nothing. It says the wisdom and the spirit. Now, what did we find out about deacons? What did they say? What did the apostles say that a deacon had to have? They had to have. They had to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, right? That's what it said. Here we see, in fact, they chose right. So much so that these guys couldn't argue with him. And let me tell you why they couldn't win an argument. Because when the Spirit is arguing, that means God is arguing. And you cannot win an argument with God. I have tried multiple times. It never works. And so these guys are coming up literally against the Spirit of God in Stephen and finding themselves dumbfounded, unable to answer his claims. Okay, so that's where these guys are. They're pretty frustrated. Let's look at verses 11 through 14. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. All right. Let's, let's look at a few things here, okay? Um, they couldn't argue with Stephen, so their solution was to gather these false witnesses. It says they induced them, okay? They must have given them something to induce them to say negative things about Stephen. Notice that these guys are cowards, 
None of them themselves want to come up and make these false accusations. Instead, they go find other people who will say these things so that they can try to win the argument this way. That's what they're trying to do, okay? Um, and so what do they say? What do the false witnesses say? Let's, let's look at these things because it's going to be important as we read Stephen's sermon to recognize what he's been accused of. These are the three things he's been accused of. That he spoke blasphemous words against Moses and God. That he does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place, that's the temple, and the law. And that he said that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the law. Now, blasphemy, just think about that as uh, sacrilegious, uh, impious talk, okay? So he's saying negative things about God, negative things about the holiness of the temple. That's what they're accusing him of. Um, so who are we dealing with at this point in the story? You have to constantly keep in your mind the actual story that's going on and sort of try to envision this. Stephen is now, from these men that were at this, the, the synagogue of the freedmen, they have now taken him in front of the council. Okay, remember these guys? This is the Sanhedrin, the great Sanhedrin, 71 members, the leaders of Israel. So that's now where Stephen is, okay? And these accusations are he's, in, he's at a trial. We've seen this already twice, right? We saw the apostles in front of them two different times in front of this council. Now Stephen is in front of this council, and there are these false witnesses putting these accusations against him, all right? Now, um, you can see that Stephen's words have been twisted. If you know the scripture and what Jesus didn't actually say, then you know that they've actually twisted his words about the temple. In Matthew 24, 2, Jesus says this. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. So Jesus did say something about the temple. He's talking about the temple here. And he says, listen, there won't be one stone sitting on another. They're accusing him of saying that Jesus is going to destroy the temple, but you'll notice that when Jesus says this, he doesn't say anything about him destroying the temple. And, by the way, the temple does get destroyed, and, by the way, not one stone sits on another when it does. And here's the basic story. A guy named Titus, Roman guy, comes in to put down basically a rebellion in Judea, he destroys the Jews, burns the city. Now, this temple, if you ever heard anything about it, is this big place, and there's gold and precious metals and stuff all over the place, okay? And when they burn it, the gold leaks down in between all these huge stones that are on top of one another. Well, here's the thing. The Romans wanted the gold. In order to get the gold, they literally had to take every stone off of that temple so that there were no stones that stood on top of any of the other ones. So when Jesus said, not one stone would be on another, and people were thinking, that's impossible, this is a huge place, and these great big stones that have, been, that have been hewn out of the rock are here. There's no one, no human is going to ever tear this down. And in fact, they did. It did happen, and not too much longer later. So that's an aside, but that's what Jesus had said. They're accusing him of saying, hey, Jesus wants to destroy the temple. He wants to destroy what the Jews are all about. Not true. All right, verse 15, it says, And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Now, I have been told multiple times that I have the face of an angel. Um, wait, no, a face for radio, that's what they said, um, which is not the same thing. No, here's the thing. I, I'm thinking of Stephen here. He has no fear, okay? He's perfectly confident, sure about what he believes. And these men who are coming against him and accusing him, he knows what the stakes are for blasphemy. 
He knows that it's a, a, a death penalty type issue for him, that he can be put to death, and yet he's sitting there completely calm. Whether or not his face was actually um, bright or in some other way looked like an angel, I'm not certain. That's possible. Some, some think that maybe his face actually had an illumination or a brightness to it that looked like an angel. But for sure, he was utterly and completely calm and confident in the face of what would scare most people and make most people nervous. Stephen was sitting there with a smile on his face. Okay? So we know that. Let's look. Let's get into chapter 7. It says, Then the high priest said, Are these things so? High priest is Caiaphas. We've talked about this guy before. So once again, you know where he is. Great Sanhedrin, high priest. The accusations have been made. And now he says, answer for yourself. So Stephen's going to get a chance to defend himself. And as we read this sermon, which is going to be the next many, many verses here, we're going to read this sermon that Stephen the deacon gives. And as we read it, keep in mind the accusations that were made against him because he does an excellent job of refuting all of these accusations, which we know are untrue because Luke says they were false accusations. So we know the accusations were untrue, but we're going to see how he deals with that, okay? So here we go. And he said, this is Stephen talking now, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. And said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession And to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage I will judge, said God, and after that they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. That's a lot, so I'm going to try to get through that quickly. He starts out with, with reverence towards them. Notice that he does not, they're treating him very poorly, very unfairly, but the way he starts is with a, a respect. He says, brethren and fathers, listen. So he's, he's saying, listen, I want you to listen to me. I'm going to treat you with respect. I understand the position that you hold. I understand that you all are the Sanhedrin, even though Stephen knows that these guys are not doing what God has called them to do, he still gives them the respect of their office, and he starts. And and the first thing he talks about is the God of glory. I want you to remember that phrase, the God of glory, because at the end of the sermon, we're going to come back around to it. He says, but he says that. And so what he's basically doing here is Stephen is showing a couple things, reverence for the people he's speaking to and reverence for the history of his people. So he's talking about Abraham, he's talking about, he's talking about the promises of God, he's talking about circumcision, and he doesn't say one negative thing in there about their traditions. He doesn't say anything negative about the law of circumcision, he doesn't say anything negative at all, so he's showing that he has respect for all of that, okay? Um, so let's look at the next verses, 9 through 16. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. And delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. 
Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Okay, so he continues on the story of the Israelites. Now he's talking about Joseph. Now why is he talking about Joseph specifically? Okay, here's what he says. Pay, pay attention to this because he's preaching Jesus here. Okay. He says, the patriarchs, this is, this is, so we have Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and then Jacob has these sons and these sons are the patriarchs, the fathers of Israel, okay? Joseph is one of these sons and they reject him. Joseph had said some things and had some dreams and believed that God was saying something about who he was going to be and that he was going to be above his brothers and his brothers got angry, they got jealous, they rejected him, he was sold into slavery, okay? So he's saying, look, when Joseph was first there, he was first rejected. Then there came a need, and the fathers, Israel, Israel, what Israel was at the time, Jacob and his sons, they were hungry because there was a famine. They were going to die of starvation. They go to Egypt, and the second time that they see Joseph, after he had been sent away, the second time they see him, they accept him, they bow to him, actually. So this is like someone else that's just been around in Israel, that when he came the first time, he was rejected, but when he comes back, he's going to be accepted, okay? So this is the first type that we're seeing here as he's preaching Jesus, okay? Because that's, that's his point, okay? He's insinuating. He's using a, a method of rhetoric, of, of arguing or of preaching called insinuation, and he's insinuating what's going on. He's, he's putting this story out, but he's kind of putting these characters where they go. So he's suggesting that the guys he's talking to are who? They're not Joseph. They're the brothers. Okay? You rejected, and then, but he's the one who's ultimately going to save you, and you will not reject him the second time when he comes back, and he's going to bring salvation, which is what Joseph did, saved them literally from, their, from dying of starvation. All right. Let's hit the next one. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose, who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was sent out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. All right. This is the second type. We see Moses. Okay, Moses comes. 
And Moses is thinking that the Jewish people who were enslaved, remember Moses got brought up by the Pharaoh, so he's not enslaved. And he comes and he sees one of his oppressed brothers being oppressed by an Egyptian, kills this Egyptian and thinks that the Jewish people understand now that Moses is going to be their deliverer, but they reject him. And specifically, we see that it was the one person who was wronging his Jewish brother, the one Jewish guy who was wronging his Jewish brother, that actually pushes Moses away and says, who are you that you want to rule over us? Right? Now, again, he's insinuating something. What was Jesus constantly saying to these Pharisees and these leaders? He's getting on them because of the way that they are treating the people, the other Jewish people, right? He's telling them they're making all these laws, they're making all these rules. Meanwhile, they're oppressing. They're oppressing the people. And what did they say to Jesus? Who are you to rule over us? Who do you think you are? Same thing. Same thing that we see. Okay, let's keep going. All right. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame, in a fire, in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. Okay, one thing to notice here. As they talked about the temple and him saying things negatively about the temple, he's putting the first little piece in here. Hey, God's not only in the temple. He appeared to Moses in this bush in the wilderness. So God is not locked up in your temple. You who are venerating this temple so highly that anything that's said that you don't like about it, you think is as bad as saying something against God, he's showing them that God is not just in the temple. You've been listening to Pastor David Robinson from Axe Church in Vancouver, Washington. And this is Contemplate. Stephen is putting up quite a defense, and you want to check out the next episode for much more as we see what it looks like to be full of faith and power. And if you enjoy these podcasts, let me invite you to come hear Pastor David in person this Sunday morning. Need easy directions anytime at axchurchnw.org or call 360-885-9000. Hope to meet you this Sunday. And remember that much more is on the way in our next episode here on Contemplate.